Here's to the finest crew in Starfleet. Engage. Welcome to the greatest generation, Deep Space Nine. It's a Star Trek podcast by a couple of guys who are a little bit embarrassed about having a Star Trek podcast. I'm Adam Pranica. I'm Ben Harrison. No longer looking at each other during, we're, we've shut that shit off. Here's a pro tip if you're, if you're podcasting remotely out there. The video is not worth it. It adds too much complication. Yeah. It's not fun. It's certainly not sexy. It's not sexy like it should be, Jack. Don't want to look at you. <laughs> Never have. <laughs> no. This is this is why when we did live shows, often a venue would offer like the six foot banquet table. Yeah, no, we go with the twelve foot every time. Put a lot of distance, and uh, and if there's like a, a room divider that we could have, like a, you know, like the dating game where the bachelor can't see the three eligible bachelorettes. Exactly. That's kind of what we're looking for. If they don't have that kind of curtain partitioning then like confession booth style is how i like to do the show yeah just stick me in in a big wooden box <laughs> yeah with a couple of air holes i i want to be a reality tv show contestant in uh 1998 if possible <laughs> yeah uh so much more comfortable now not looking at each other during i'm just looking at waveforms i'm looking at a great big rum drink god look at you I didn't make my my bag beverage today. Um, yeah, but I had some uh, some blood oranges, so I've made a blood orange daiquiri. That sounds real nice. Hey, let me ask you a question that's California specific. Okay, you've lived here a while. If I'm out and I'm walking my pupper, you're talking about Sprocket the dog. Sprocket the dog, one of the great dogs, one of the all time greats. I have often observed the many varieties and sizes of citrus trees. Uh, in my neighborhood, many of them, you know, behind the fences right. of the homes that I walk past, but some, mm-hmm. some of these, Ben, have branches that hang over the sidewalk. Yeah. Am I allowed to pick the citrus from those sidewalk hanging branches? Is that allowed or is that stealing? I imagine that this will be controversial, but I think those are fair game. I haven't done it yet because I don't want to get caught doing it. Here, here's my Here's my thinking, Adam. Having lived here for a few years now, one constant of non-socially distanced life in Los Angeles is that anytime you see anyone that has a yard, they are foisting citrus on you. They they have too much and they need to get rid of it. Uh-huh. And around my neighborhood, people even put out a crate of citrus and write a little note on it that says, please take some lemons or whatever. <laughs> There are no crates in my neighborhood. Yeah, but honestly, like, more is being produced than single households can consume. Like, if you if you have one citrus tree in your yard in Los Angeles, like, I defy you to find anyone that's actually getting through all of what they're growing. So I think if you want to pop a pomelo off of a tree and take it home with you... <laughs> I think you're I think you're like well within reason doing that. I used to get really pummeled in middle school. It's a memory <laughs> I'd like to forget. Okay. Well, I didn't mean to I didn't mean to pick a scab. Hey, follow-up question. Sure. Do people put citrus trees in containers and grow them on their balconies cuz I I have a balcony. Yeah. Can I grow Can I grow pummelo there? You could definitely do that. Uh, I have two citrus trees in my front yard, um, one of which I have done a very bad job attending. It's a Meyer lemon bush that I 
uh, I think is in a much too small pot and I need to repot. But we have also just like a regular lemon tree that we got maybe two months ago. And uh, it looks like it's about to start yielding some fruit. And it's, it is also a potted plant. It was like this for you and Jack? No. It was another fella. Really miss Roger Cook, TVH. <laughs> I feel like he's a guy that if I didn't ask this old house, he'd have tips on, on container gardening a citrus tree. But what I'd really want to know is his policy on like neighborhood walks and whether or not you should grab a neighbor's citrus. He would send you his social security card in the mail accidentally. <laughs> and then in the process of getting it back would give you all the answers. <laughs> Tell you this, this uh, this lemon tree that we have, you know, like you can see the fruits, but they're like the size of a, a grape right now. You know, I've always said the, the littler the fruit, the sweeter the juice. <laughs> yeah, that's... I've always said that. That's something I've uh, asked you to stop saying. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it, I keep saying it. <laughs> just, no one ever likes it. Yeah, it's it, you bring it up all the time, <laughs> apropos of nothing, and we're like, why does Adam keep saying that? <laughs> Anyways, what I was going to say is, it's this tree is right near the fence, and it's uh, also right below the window that I uh, sit next to when we're recording our show, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and in, in the thought experiment where I see somebody walk by and pop one of our lemons off of that thing, I bear that person no ill will. I mean, you're a gentle soul. That's what that tells me. As generous of a spirit as I wrongly believe I have, (laughs) uh, I know that would upset me if I saw someone stripping a citrus tree that I owned. I wouldn't like that. No one's going to mind if if someone takes one or two, right? Here's the thing, Adam. You haven't been down here long enough to understand what a problem it is. <laughs> the amount of citrus, like it's it's literally like we are we are throwing away rotten citrus here in Los Angeles. It's a shame. I'm excited to experience that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, welcome to your citrus privilege. <laughs> yeah. Well, one especially sweet piece of fruit in all of the DS9 neighborhood. Uh, comes from the episode we're here to talk about mm. today, Ben. Isn't that right? Boy, that was a tortured <laughs> metaphor if ever there was one. <laughs> yeah, one of the biggest, too. Look at how low this fruit hangs. Yeah, how about a little bit less of a tortured metaphor? <laughs> As we get into Deep Space Nine Season 6, Episode 13, Far Beyond the Stars. Do you realize how incredible this is? <laughs> No, of course you don't. This episode opens with a very stressed out Captain Sisko. You can tell he's stressed out because his desk is piled high with iPads. Yeah, he's got a room full of iPads and he has none of those uh, expended power rods that signify all of their many victories in this war. More iPads than rods? That's a bad ratio. Kira's there. She's telling him about how the uh, USS Cortez went missing. The little D tried to find it, but it failed. This was a ship that was patrolling the Cardassian border, and uh, it looks like the Cardassian border is a dangerous thing to, to patrol. You never know when you're going to run into a squadron of Jem'Hadar fighters. But, I mean, there was like a peace talk conference a few episodes ago. Yeah, it, it seems like things have really slipped. Peace does not seem to be on the menu anymore. Peace is not on the menu, boys! <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting the terminology that Ben Sisko uses here. He takes the many losses 
personally, and it's not just because he was friends with Captain Swafford, it's that these many losses he speaks of are are his. He uses I words mm-hmm. about the losses as if it's not just Federation losses, they're his personally. He's got the weight of the Alpha Quadrant on his shoulders. I don't think that's fair. Why is he putting it all on him? Yeah, that sucks for Ben Sisko. Yeah, what must it be like to blame yourself <laughs> for so many bad things happening in the universe? Yeah, what's wrong with Ben Sisko that he does that? I can't think of anyone I know that does that. Um, one way you know that peace talks have been have been perverted and ignored, Adam, is that Admiral Cartwright shows up. I must protest. He's like, hey, Ben Sisko, maybe you haven't tried bringing them to their knees <laughs> <laughs> so that you can then dictate terms. Any interest in, say, turning the gem at R into the alien trash of the galaxy? <laughs> God, he's just the best. He's the fucking greatest. Uh, Joe Sisko visiting his son. It, this, is, this, I feel like, is dealt with with far less fanfare than it should, right? Because, like, yeah, he, he refused un, in no uncertain terms to ever come visit Deep Space Nine, ever leave the restaurant behind. Right. Here he is. He's and it's the like, last man on the volcano. He's like, like, that's his vibe. And he says, if not now, when? You know what? It feels like Ben Sisko could have treated this moment with the kind of apprehension that, uh, that characters usually treat ahead of visits by Loxana Troy, you know? <laughs> like, just what you need when you're going through a thing is a visit from your dad, right? Right, yeah. There would have been a, a fun scene of Ben Sisko sneaking around in the hallways. Yeah, his dad wanting to nudely marry someone. <laughs> <laughs> He's a very libertine man. Yeah. I got the sense that Joe has been around for a few days though like this is yeah. a the visit's very lived in uh, yeah like he's he's stopping by the office uh as part of his vacation you know day day four of the vacation or whatever have you ever had a family member come visit you at work like do the hey show me where you work kind of kind of situation <laughs> you mean show me the front bedroom of your little apartment <laughs> i meant back when you used to have a real job i've had a real job like one time and it was for nine months yeah. And my parents did not visit the city I lived in when I had it. Lucky you. <laughs> I mean, back when I used to work at a grocery store and at a movie theater, like, my retail jobs were such that, like, they were in the neighborhood where I lived and where my yeah. parents lived. So they would come in all the time. Yeah. That's not comfortable. I tried to get a job at the grocery store in my neighborhood when I was a kid. And, like, it was, like, a small enough grocer that, like, the guy who ran, like, the manager of the of the grocery store was, like, a guy that we would, like, know to say hi to. Mm-hmm. And I, like, personally asked him if he would consider me for a stock boy position or something like that. <laughs> and... Were you dressed like an old-timey stock boy when you asked him? Yeah, I said, hey, mister, <laughs> how's about giving a local kid a job? What do you say? <laughs> uh, he said, you go to a high school that gives too much homework, and you wouldn't be able to keep up with the hours that I would need to give you. Wow. Uh, that is a hell of a thing to make up in the moment. <laughs> I really respect that guy's lying game. <laughs> I mean, he was right. He saved himself a lot of trouble. I did not have a spare 20 hours a week in my my teen days. No one did. No. So the question between Joe Sisko and his son at this point is, should Ben Sisko take a step back? 
Like he's actually seriously considering maybe either taking a break or stepping down from his position. Let someone else make the tough calls. Well, you see, the going has gotten tough for Ben Sisko. The tough do get going. That's the rule, right? Yeah, but he's he hasn't decided whether or not he's the tough. Is he tough enough? Bow, bow, bow. Is he tough enough? You know that song? Is that Pearl Jam? I think it's by the Fabulous Thunderbirds. Does Eddie Vedder sing for them? No, but it's like one of the early rock songs where I feel like the uh, lead vocalist is very, very Yarly, sort of a proto-Yarl vocalist. (laughs) 1985, the Fabulous Thunderbirds. Tough Enough is the name of the song, and it's spelled with two Fs hmm. in both of those words. I think my character in Skyrim was considered a proto-Yarl. <laughs> I've just Jackie and Lori do uh, the video. You're going to love it. Okay, should we just pause the podcast and watch a music video right now? <laughs> it's never been more clear. Uh, we do not like the same music. <laughs> <laughs> During this conversation... Uh, Ben Sisko is distracted. He's distracted by what he believes to be a dapper Odo (laughs) walking outside his door. He says, was that Oldo? It would have been great if he had walked outside and that's just Odo's new look. (laughs) You know, I can look like anything. I'm trying to blend in. I thought I would make your father feel more comfortable if I dressed more (laughs) old-timey. In retrospect, that was a terrible choice, especially in the context of this episode, which is about how things between black people and white people used to be even worse than now. I mean, a lot of people say that they don't see race, but I I feel like when you're me and you're a changeling, you really don't see race. (laughs) All all you solids look the same to me. Ha ha ha. Ben Sisko, like, chases out after him and everyone at Ops is looking at him like he's nuts and my thought at this moment was did he catch something from Ducat? I wrote the same thing down did did Cisco catch Ducat disease? I mean for the character you would think that'd be pretty scary but for the rest of the episode this is not a thing that scares Ben Cisco. he's no stranger to hallucinations yeah it's wild having had the episode Waltz be as recent as this and, and no discussion of that uh of that phenomenon but i guess i guess ducat didn't quite describe what he was experiencing to anyone else so maybe maybe it makes sense i don't know how many ago was walt it was two two episodes ago yeah ancient history (laughs) (laughs) this is a serialized show we're not talking about waltz anymore waltz never even heard of it guess who else uh is ancient history that has been brought back adam we're talking about Cassidy Yates of Cassidy Yates Freights. Yeah, haven't seen her in a long time. I think when you're feeling bad and you're walking home after work, she's going to fix things right up. Boy, she's a sight for sore eyes. She's making him feel better and also making him feel worse because he's like, <laughs> aren't you worried about being a freighter ship captain, being swarmed by Jem'Hadar fighters? And she's like, no, not at all, actually. <laughs> yeah. No reason. <laughs> She, like, picks her teeth with a knife and says, I ain't scared of death, you bitch. I've been to prison, Ben Sisko. <laughs> you think I'm scared of a Jem'Hadar tick? She's got fucking, like, jailhouse tats all over her neck and forehead and stuff. 
She's, she's got uh, tears tattooed below her eyes, and they are, they're all like little spoons instead of teardrops. <laughs> they look exactly the same, except they're upside down. She is really psychotic in this episode. Just, just fucking killing people left and right. She's, she's terrifying. Yeah. Uh, he sees uh, he sees Worf, but not Worf. Michael Dorn uh, dressed as a New York giant. I wonder if Fuck Bokai knows who Willie Hawkins is. Mm. Oh, yeah. Fuck Bokai got uh, his batting stance from uh, the Michael Dorn character in this episode. That's what people have always said about Fuck Bokai. He's a real student of the game. <laughs> so Ben Sisko chases after this guy. This this baseball player goes into some quarters. The door shuts behind him. And then Ben Sisko opens the door. And as soon as he walks in, we, we get that reverse shot where... Uh, he's in the white room, he's gone someplace else, and then we reverse shot again, and he he's in a 1950s American city. Yeah, he's, uh, he's in his uniform, but the, uh, you know, like, it's, it's buses and, buses and 50s cabs and stuff, and he gets hit by a cab, really gets hit hard, and, like, getting hit by a, a vehicle of this era... <laughs> Seems like a death sentence. Seems like a bone-shattering situation, right? Like these are not these are not vehicles built with safety standards in place, right? He wakes up and he's in Six Bay with Cassidy and Joe, and for some reason Jake and uh, Doctor Bashir is there uh, scanning him. And this this is a uh, compared to the disease he had when he was having his profit visions. Uh, last season, I believe. He's not going to need surgery again, is he? I'm not sure yet. I just want to put out there that lobotomy is an option. (laughs) Also, you pissed yourself when you collapsed, and I did take the liberty of collecting a sample. Surprise, you're pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) This is some bedside manner, though, that I think is super effective, right? Because instead of being scared, Ben Sisko's like, oh, yeah, I've had visions like this before. And they are medically exactly the same as what I had before. So this isn't a disease or anything. Uh, He hands him an iPad, and uh, we cut down to that iPad, and it is... Not an iPad, but a uh, little TV guide-sized magazine called Galaxy Science Fiction. And, uh, and we pan up, and Ben Sisko is no longer Ben Sisko. He is now Benny Russell, man in a gray flannel suit and a trilby hat. And he's buying Galaxy Magazine from Newsboy Nog. Me? I like more stories. Dressed exactly the same way as I was dressed when I asked for that job at the uh, at the grocery store. How great is it to see Aaron Eisenberg out of makeup? I loved seeing everybody out of makeup. Same. I think the outdoor stuff in this, like, it's obviously a studio backlot, but, like, they really spared no expense with filling it with cars and extras. Like, the traffic is always dense. There's always, like, a ton of things to look at, tons of people in costume, people hustling and bustling, and you know, steam coming up out of grates and stuff. Like, a studio backlot that looks ten times better than a, you know, like Seinfeld trying to have a New York street set. I totally agree, and I think one of the things you described is the thing that puts it over the top. It's the atmosphere. Like, you can fill a shot with cars and people, but if you're not 
going that final step with the steam out of the grates or using your fogger. Yeah. Uh, there's something that looks a little bit Gilmore Girlsy about it, but it's those touches, those those little details that really sell the place here. Colin Meany uh, shows up, not doing a, an Irish accent, and uh, he's playing Albert Macklin, and then uh, he and uh, he and Benny walk to work together. He's a guy that, like me, can't quite get the thought out of his head. <laughs> he rambles a little bit. You could argue that all of the characters play versions of themselves in this episode, but I don't understand why Albert Macklin's such a fucking dope. He's really dopey this episode. That's not what O'Brien's about. Yeah, but he's a very familiar guy who wants to tell science fiction stories character to me. A person who expresses themselves better uh, with the written word instead of verbally. Yeah, and and better via robots than via (laughs) Uh three-dimensional human characters. Oh, yeah. I've definitely known people like this before. I'm probably one of them. To be honest, basically what I'm saying is Albert Macklin is me, and I'm not proud of that. Albert and Benny work at Incredible Tales, which is a science fiction magazine. Competitor to Galaxy. And uh, the office is filled out with a number of other familiar characters who are out of the alien makeup that we would usually see them in. We've got Nana Visitor as Kay Eaton. H.G. Wells would have liked it. We've got... Armin Shimmerman as Herbert Rossoff. Pabst, get out here. We've got Rene Auberginois as Douglas Pabst. What's wrong now, Herb? And we've got Alexander Siddig as Julius. White rose ready tea. What an appalling concept. Julius Eaton. One of the neat parts of this episode is that it teaches you how pulp comics and pulp stories were made back in the 50s. And I was delighted that at least in the context of this story, they started with the illustration and worked backwards because when Martok comes in as the illustrator for the magazine, he comes in with all these illustrations and then they just sort of draft the pictures like they're they're doing a dodgeball team. Let's see what Uncle Roy has for you today. They're choosing which ones they want to write about. All right, I've titled this one, Please Take Me With You. Who wants it? I like that, uh, that J.G. Hertzler kind of based this character off of jk woodward (laughs) it's great and like the attention to detail doesn't stop with just sets and costumes and stuff like these pictures are really great yeah i like the camera lingers on them only for a moment but you can tell that like a ton of work went into making like these really cool and they're like the you know like the blue pencil you know Mm -hmm. that you do all the shapes with and then you like and then you fill in with the ink um yeah which is Really neat. Uh, Very fun to see. J.G. Hertzler's regular speaking voice is so great, and it's emblematic of a lot of what we experience throughout this episode, is like a familiarity with someone due to their voice because you're not seeing them in the makeup you're used to. So like when you see a Mark Alamo later out of Gold Ducat makeup, you're like, oh, that's what a speaking voice sounds like. (laughs) Like there's enough of it there to be familiar, but not all of it. So you, I think you get a greater appreciation for how much work it takes to actually get into these characters. Yeah. Hertzler's character shows one picture that uh, bears a great deal of resemblance to Deep Space Nine. And this is the one that Benny is drawn to. He flips past the one of the horse playing saxophone. <laughs> He's like, uh, this is a futuristic 
Space horse playing his laser-powered wind instrument. Who wants it? I think we can do something with that. There's some discussion of uh, their publisher, Mr. Stone, who wants to uh, to run a photo of all of the authors in the magazine in the magazine next month. And uh, uh, Mr. Pabst tells the Kira lady, maybe uh, maybe don't come in to work that day. And Benny, Ben Sisko, also... Uh, assumes that that means him as well and uh this is uh this is kind of the the first signpost that this is a episode about the 50s that is not going to be a nostalgia dick suck of the 50s but rather an indictment of the right. horrors of living in the 50s if you weren't a white dude one of the things i'm fond of saying on friendly fire is that a movie teaches you how to watch it and this is the moment in this episode where you understand how you are to consume it. Like, this is not the Roswell Ferengi episode right? at all. And this is the moment where you turn off of that road. Yeah. And I mean, like, I think that there is a phenomenon in movies and television where a black character takes umbrage at oppression in a way that is kind of played for a joke. There's like a there's like a black uh, comics artist in in like chasing Amy that I feel like every time he is oppressed by one of the white characters that you know he gets like militant about it and it's like a ha ha. Hold on, are you saying that a Kevin Smith movie might have some retrograde ideas about gender and race? I mean, that's probably the only retrograde idea in chasing Amy, but. Uh, I'm making surprised Kevin Smith face now. <laughs> if we were on FaceTime, still you'd see it. But I also don't think that that like originated with Kevin Smith. I'm not. No. Uh, yeah. I, I, I'm it's sa- a product of its time to a great degree. To a great degree, but also like that's a thing that, especially in the '90s, like th- there were a lot of characters like that in our in our popular media. Yeah, like shows and movies got better at representation, but not any more than that. Right. Like, like they're in it, but the type of people they're playing are are shorthands like that. Right. And uh this is not Ben Cisco, but it looks like Ben Cisco and we have spent six seasons coming to really like this guy and you know, think of him as the star of the show. So when he gets put in the ball kicking machine at the beginning of this scenario in a way that is reminiscent of a a real time in our past, you inherently react differently to it. Yeah. And I think that I imagine it would have been hard to pitch an episode like this in season one. Like, I think that if you had this exact script in season one, it would work just as well now. But in season one, I bet the studio wouldn't accept a script like this. I agree with you that this is this would never work for season one because no one would probably approve of something so ambitious. Yeah. But I think if they were to, it would fast track how much we like and respect and understand Ben Sisko as a character yeah. Like it would be it would be too much too soon. But like it would be amazing if they had. I think we just appreciate it more in season 6 because we know the man. Yeah. So much better. Yeah. Th- yeah. I and think we that's... feel for him and and hurt with him when he hurts in a way that I don't know if you're capable of in season 1. Like it's effective in a different way, I think if it comes in a different order. 
Right. So uh, the Armin Shimmerman, Shimmerman character, Herbert Rossoff, really takes great exception to the decision to leave the female writer and the African-American writer out of the staff photo. But he's also just kind of a, uh, a complainer. Like, he's always kind of, like, finding things to take exception to around the office. Everyone really rolls their eyes at his virtue signaling. Would someone please shoot me and put me out of my misery? Oh, how I long for a gun. I think the thing that that counterbalances that character so well is the Douglas Pabst character because they they meet on such equal and opposing terms. They are often pitted against each other directly. Like there's never a scene where where Herbert is without Douglas. Yeah. If Herbert Rossoff were given room in this episode to monologize about the many areas of the workplace that justice is not being done, I think you'd see the seams of an episode like this and you'd see the hand of the writers yeah. condescending. But because he's pitted against the Pabst character directly every time, I think that is that's more subtle. Well, I also like that the Rasov character like kind of is just a creature of the office. Like <laughs> we don't really see a lot of him in other contexts, so he just He's just there to, like, go to work and, and mm-hmm. you know, stand on his high horse. He took the jazz horse story, too, so. Yeah. I mean, we don't get the sense that he's a very good writer yeah. on the staff. Benny leaves work with his drawing to uh, take it home and, and work on it, and it, uh, it gets caught in the wind. An Oxford shoe stamps down on it, and when he goes down to pick it up, uh, he looks up and, and meets uh, the Mark Alamo and the Jeffrey Combs characters uh, these are these are two plain clothes cops this is one of the rare special effects this episode ben i was reading that they attached this drawing to a piece of fishing line and a helium balloon and they set it up so that it would fall just so into frame wow that's fun that's great uh, the helium balloon i imagine to just give it some believable gustiness yeah that's that's the word <laughs> god damn it <laughs> Jeffrey Combs took a massive hit on that helium balloon, too, and then delivers his lines as the NYPD detective <laughs> with helium voice. Kind of took me out of the episode there. <laughs> I'm a racist. <laughs> <laughs> so am I. I'm chain-smoking cigarettes and perpetrating oppression. <laughs> <laughs> These are the uh, the harassing cops who... Uh, you know, treat him as guilty until proven innocent. This is great for Mark Alamo because uh, he's used to acting venomously and threateningly like he is. Yeah, and uh, this is like a, you know, a post-Rodney King world, but not a not a post-Trayvon Martin world. And, it, and like the police right. are, are depicted as bad people. Right. And I'm not saying that all police are bad people, but I think that if you're a person of color, they are dangerous and always have been. Well, I mean, very specifically, this is a 1950s world and a 1950s city right. sort of relationship happening. So I think I think that context deadens a little bit of what you can The, like, contemporary a, social a, criticism. Right. That's what I think. Yeah, that's true. I think that maybe there's some self-flattery that, like, we've really made a lot of progress on that happening in the 90s. I don't know if that's a part of this. Yeah. I'm not sure if I agree. Sorry, Benny, I wish things were different, but they're not. Cisco is able to wiggle out of this situation by diminishing the value of the thing 
that Mark Alamo has stepped on. It's not worth anything except to me. He gets his picture back and he goes on his way, mostly because the detectives are too busy to deal with fucking around with him. Yeah, with arresting him for no reason. Uh, His next stop, though, is running into the character of his father, who, instead of being Joseph Sisko, is a street preacher who is uh, proselytizing the work of the prophets. A real, like, uh, fancy accent on this street preacher. You know what, to be honest, Ben, I didn't even notice the accent until you brought it up. He's got a very uh, very floral accent and and he kind of he kind of speaks somewhat in the terms of a christian street preacher which is how he's styled i mean he's got like a like anglican or catholic look to him but he's got a little bit of bajoran religion stuff laced in there too yeah the terminology is that but the visual is within the context yeah go now Write the truth that's in your heart. He gets home and and we see the inside of Benny Russell's apartment. Seems like a pretty cool place. Goes into the icebox, grabs himself a bottle of milk. (laughs) He sits down to his typewriter and starts writing. He's got all the inspiration he needs. He's got this depiction of Deep Space Nine. And so he gets to work and the very first line begins, Captain Benjamin Sisko. It's like he's writing his own story. And then he looks outside and he sees Ben Sisko in the what what and then he picks up his typewriter and throws it through the window (laughs) i really liked the paper stock in the in the close-ups like when he's when he's like using the typewriter like the paper is really like textury in a really fun way i don't feel like any detail is missed in this episode and that's one of them yeah like it's really great we should mention that uh, Avery Brooks directed this episode uh, while we're being so effusive with our praise of mm-hmm. all of these touches. Yeah. I mean, a lot of what I read directs a lot of the responsibility for the episode at him, like as Avery Brooks is a reason for its quality in a lot of these areas, like more than what you would ascribe as the responsibility of a director. He really took a heavy hand in a lot of the details too. Yeah. Uh, in terms of what we see on set, the sort of music that Benny Russell listens to, uh, all the little touches. It's really cool. I wonder if the budget of this was radically different from an average Deep Space Nine episode. That's the way it works on on these seasons with a lot of episodes, though. You steal from episode Peter to pay episode Paul, right? Yeah. But, like, also there's not a lot of, you know, <clears throat> sequences where 2,000 Jem'Hadar ticks are right. taking shots at the station. And there's not a lot of loaf in this episode. Yeah. But then there are, like, 400 period-appropriate cars and costumes. Right. The next day, Cisco arrives at my favorite place in the world, a diner. And it's where Cassie works. Yeah. Cassie, who we're familiar with more as Cassidy Yates. And uh, my favorite type of person who works at a diner is a server who calls me baby. Hey, baby. Have a seat. The usual. Benny Russell is wearing a kufi hat in this scene, and he wears it a couple more times in the episode. And I wondered, I thought it was interesting, especially given the, like, Anglican and or Catholic-looking priest that is a major mm-hmm. recurring character in this episode, that Benny Russell would be wearing a hat that kind of styles him as being a a practitioner of islam 
Hmm. I wondered whether there was intentionality there to kind of like make it a little bit more ambiguous what the real world religious implications were. That suspicion is confirmed when Cassie serves him a pork chop and Benny Russell picks it up and like throws it across the diner. Yeah. (laughs) He does not take that kindly. Very insulted. I mean, it is Benny Russell. He throws the entire plate across the diner because he doesn't even let his skin touch the chop itself. Yeah, very unclean. Yeah, Uh, Cassie is his is his uh, lady friend, and uh, Mm -hmm. she's got she's got designs on this on this coffee shop. Seems like a place we could get a great shake or a milk, chocolate, and then have it slide across the bar into your hand. Uh, Willie Hawkins walks in, and that's the baseball playing Michael Dorn character, and he has an absolute harem with him. He is a baseball hero, and he's very popular with this group of girls that that sits at a booth waiting for him. And uh, the thing about Willie Hawkins is that these girls aren't enough for him. He is sweet on Cassie. Yeah. He is a very flamboyant dude. Big red suit, Mm -hmm. very uh, jaunty hat, Mm -hmm. and uh, pretty shameless about kicking it to Cassie right in front of her beau. Yeah. I thought one of the most interesting dynamics in this episode was how relentless... Willie Hawkins is about putting the moves on Cassie right in front of Benny and how Benny is never combative or never even really seems threatened by it. Like, Benny is very confident in his relationship with Cassie. I wonder if this is a show that is very aware of our knowledge about Back to the Future because that happens in that movie. Like, Biff hits on Lorraine in front of the McFlies constantly. And I almost wonder to what extent it's an understood and accepted way to be in the 50s because of how woven into the fabric of popular culture that film is. I also think that like the way dating worked back then had like some different, like some of the- pretty aggressive. Some of the rules were were different. Like dating somebody exclusively was not really- In the 50s, you were relied upon to make a move. Right. (laughs) And uh, that means that if I had grown up in the 50s, I just would have grown up alone and (laughs) then died. (laughs) Yeah, same. Yeah, I would have become an old spinster. Mm-hmm. For some reason, Jimmy walks in, <laughs> and uh, Jimmy is the character played by Sirach Lofton, and he's uh, he's going on about selling watches, and this is a line of work that Benny tries to talk him out of. Yeah, Jimmy's a bit of a no-good Nick, kind of getting into schemes, and he says that there's nothing he can get into that he can't get out of. In the same way that Benny doesn't have much affection for how Jimmy makes a buck, uh, Jimmy feels the same way about Benny, sort of making fun of of his writing. Nobody wants to read about white people on the moon. But the way Benny explains it uh, is that he's writing about us, and he gestures like with his hand. You and me, for some reason, Jimmy. (laughs) Colored people on the moon. You can leave your Gil Scott Heron references behind. I just wrote a great story. <laughs> you get the sense that something bad's going to happen uh, for some reason, Jimmy, at some point this episode, you know? Yeah, you really do. What are you doing now? Exactly. 
Well, back in the writer's room, uh, Darlene Kursky is reading some of the drafts. She's the secretary. I don't know why she's so involved in the writing and editing process. And she is uh, very blown away by the idea of trills. (laughs) She's got a worm in the belly. She thinks it's very trill. (laughs) They don't do that thing a lot in this episode where they have the actor talk against the type of character that they play on DS9. I think they don't overdo that. Yeah. This is one of the few times where that's something that happens. Judicious is maybe the word you're looking for. Yeah. I I was kind of wondering where Terry Farrell was going to be in this episode because a lot of episode goes by before we see her in the 1950s context. But uh, the whole staff is like, this is a fucking great story. But Mr. Pabst is uh, a little bit less enthusiastic about it because uh, Benny has written a story about a black man being the captain in charge of a space station. And uh, that just isn't going to move copies of their magazine as far as he's concerned mr pabst really has an inflated sense of his magazine's importance or power (laughs) because he goes right to 10 with for all we know it could cause a race riot hold on mr pabst i think maybe 50 people read your magazine like it's okay that's how i would have argued against him if i were uh, herbert rossoff yeah what the fuck pabst (laughs) simmer down I mean, this scene made me think, like, because they're talking about, like, Mr. Stone isn't going to let this see print. And, like, I really thought that they were setting up, like, okay, we are going to meet Mr. Stone. And then I start going, like, who's going to, who is going to be Mr. Stone? Who is this person that Pabst is so scared of that is, like, such a strident racist, but also publishes a sci-fi magazine? Perhaps your blood has thinned in this environment. I thought the same thing. But in the end, I love the idea that racism and especially institutional racism doesn't have an end boss. Yeah. It's not a person. Yeah. I kind of wish Mr. Stone had maybe been like the parent company or something like that. Mm -hmm. Just to like diffuse it a little bit, not put it into one person, even if we don't meet that person. Yeah. But, um. I mean, they have a very interesting argument about, like, the idea that just this is too big a pill to swallow for 1953 Americans. Speaking of things to swallow, <laughs> Benny Russell goes back to the diner and he pulls uh, his he's, dick out and shows it to Cass. <laughs> he's pretty hurt about what happened at the office. And, uh, I mean, Cassie's great. Cassie yeah. soothes the sad Benny in this moment. And, uh, unfortunately, for some reason, Jimmy is there to gloat. He is delighting in. Benny's defeat. The only reason they'll ever let us in space is if they need someone to shine their shoes. Because he's resigned about the status of race relations in America. He even accepts it in a weird way. Right. And for some reason, Jimmy says the N-word. And I think we can't do this episode without talking about how bracing that moment was. This is a Star Trek episode. Mm -hmm. And that word is explosive. And uh, I was... Very surprised that it was in it, but I was also very grateful that it was in it because it hurts to hear it and it grabs you by the lapels and it shakes you. Ambiguity goes out the window when he says that, when he says, as far as they are concerned, we will always be dot, dot, dot. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's a moment where you pause and think about where things were in the 1950s, where things are now, where things were in the 1990s. It made me wonder, like, did that word get beeped on TV or did that 
Like, because I don't think that a network television show drops an N-bomb anymore, you know? Ben, we famously don't do research on this show, but I really did try to figure out how much controversy there was around its use here, and I really couldn't find any conversation about it. I I have a memory of um, listening to, I think it was an On the Media episode about, like, the the transition that the N-word made from something that you could say on TV to something that you couldn't mm-hmm. and how it sort of became one of the one of the words, one of the bad words and perspectives from all sides like saying like like you know like giving it the power of being a word that gets beeped is is freighting it with even more more negative energy that we maybe shouldn't People saying, like, we should just get it out of the vocabulary entirely. People saying beeping it helps a public understand, like, how hurtful it is in a way that maybe they haven't totally understood up until now. And I don't remember exactly when that was, but uh, I think that, like, this kind of happened, like, right toward the end of when it was something that you could put into a primetime TV episode without having Mm. all of your commercial sponsors dump your show or whatever. The action of beeping it is something that anyone understands as shorthand for profanity. Right. Like, a thing is profane when it is beeped. Yeah. It it feels profane here. And, I mean, you think a lot about, like, how much we have changed our relationship as a society with terminology like that. Things are going to change. They have to. Keep telling yourself that. It's really interesting in the context of the episode and its story that Cisco and for some reason Jimmy have this conversation and we don't sit in it. There isn't that self-aware moment of and the, and then the music changes and then like the whole thing. Like that doesn't happen. Willie Hawkins walks in immediately as Worf and and Cisco falls out of his stool like we've We've changed the temperature of the scene almost immediately. Yeah. And I think a very intentional way. Yeah, and I think it's very interesting that it's not Worf as Starfleet officer, but Worf as Klingon warrior. Right. You, you know, like they're talking about like being being a writer, like imagining a better future for for black people and then like the scariest blackest version of Worf pops in, you know? Whoa. So that was a level of intention that I did not perceive. You think those things are related? I don't know. Like, I think that, like, the the contrast is so big because, like, you cut from Cleon Warrior Worf to Willie Hawkins in, like, a tan suit and a fedora, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like the contrast is bigger. So... There's definitely a choice being made there, right? Like that Worf is not in his TNG uniform. But like many scenes in this episode, the Benny character is seeing both the human characters around him and their DS9 counterparts. So he he flashes on this Michael Dorn Klingon character and then flashes out of that into the Willie Hawkins character. Yeah. Benny gets out of here pretty fast. He's he's clearly uh, losing it a little bit. And rather than have his breakdown in public in the diner, uh, he heads back to his apartment where, on the way, he runs into the street preacher again. Right to the words, Brother Benny! Right to the words! 
And that's exactly what he does when he's back at home at his typewriter. He writes a bunch more stories about Deep Space Nine, despite the fact that he's been told that that's not something the magazine is willing to publish. So much so that he breaks his date with Cassie. He wakes up to the radio and she's in his apartment and she says, you uh, you stood me up, bub. This is maybe the most science fiction part of of Star Trek history here <laughs> in that a character blows off a date and she's not mad at him for it. <laughs> she's like, so uh, why did you uh, make me sit there at that restaurant by myself? Oh, you were writing about a guy 400 years from now running around a space station with aliens? She should be so mad at him. <laughs> this should be a relationship killer. I would be in big trouble for sure. Anyone would. Yeah. Cassie's not a real character. <laughs> not realistic. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. We had um, Danielle Radford on uh, The Greatest Discovery one time, and she said that like one of the criticisms she had of Ben Sisko as a captain is that he's maybe like too perfect of a black father figure. Mm-hmm. Like the idea of having a black Star Trek captain, like A+, plus. But the idea that he, like, has no flaws is maybe, like, not to put words in her mouth, but, like, something that she was saying, like, makes him slightly less interesting. Like, she was saying that in the context of saying that she loves Michael Burnham as a character for being black lead of a Star Trek show that is complicated and has, like, amazing strengths, but also weaknesses and things that she's trying to deal with. And the, like extremely positive resolution of a relationship conflict of I blew off a date and fell asleep and my girlfriend yeah, is an example of that being like so much cooler about that than any human could ever be expected to be <laughs> yeah <laughs> kind of a nice illustration of that point I think yeah and Benny continues to hallucinate because because they make up they have a little uh, living room dance. Yeah. He has a hallucination again, and then he, he staggers into the piano. Tell me, tell me what's wrong. I'm starting to see things from my story. The living room dance is one where they are kind of cutting back and forth between being Cassidy and Ben Sisko and Cassie and Benny and in Deep Space right. Nine and in his apartment. And back in the apartment after he's crashed into the piano, he feels like he is becoming Ben Sisko. Benny isn't feeling well, and yet he goes into work anyway. Because the next day, he's there, and, and Pabst is treating him the way that Cassie should have. He's super pissed that he wrote six more stories about Ben Sisko. Yeah. What are you doing, Benny? Benny got assigned to write a novella and instead wrote shorts in the Deep Space Nineiverse. You can't do that. And Paps, you know, calls him crazy. The Julian Bashir guy suggests, like, maybe self-publish, maybe do a little Vanity Press thing. And uh, Paps likes that idea. And then they all kind of take cracks at at, uh, how few people would read it if he uh, self-published. Macklin has an interesting idea, though. He's like, if you just make it a dream, that'll actually make it the science fiction that will make it not threatening to sensitive whites. Making it a dream guts the story. Shut up, Herb! I think it makes it more poignant. Because it will be yeah. that, like, one level removed. Benny kind of softens to this idea and considers it. Because he's, like, getting this story published 
is better than not getting this story published. So right. if it's like a slightly compromised version of it, he's willing to go for it. Right. And then he's happy, right? Yeah. And then we cut to end credits, and that's the end of the episode. In fact, he runs into, for some reason, Jimmy on the street, and for some reason, Jimmy does not want to go celebrate with him. He's got some business to go do. But uh, but Cassie does. He comes into the diner, and uh, it's a put-on-your-bread-dress-level event because he's getting three cents a word, baby. Cassie's like, now you're going to show up this time, right? <laughs> you're not going to do that thing that you did last night? He's like, I wrote all seven of the stories already. Like, we're going out. I, I feel like I have two or three more stories that I could sit down and write pretty much any time, but I'm going to put that off. Yeah. Because I'm going to go dancing with you. And so they do. And this is a great set piece, Ben, because we've seen different angles of the street before in the daytime mostly. But lighting it for night is so beautiful. You know, they've wet down the sidewalks and the street. Yeah. The the lights all shimmery. And we, when we like start on a crane shot and we see people up in their balconies and it's just really gorgeous. The fact that they have people like, you know, turning on lights and throwing open their blinds up in the buildings. The fact that there's like a traffic jam number of cars on the street. Mm -hmm. It's really like a perfect, a perfect illusion of 1950s. New York. We don't see inside the party uh, because I think that would be too expensive. We can't, we don't have money for another setup, but what we do is we get them leaving the party. Yeah. uh, Which is just as good, I think. We we see them interacting with each other and with the public, and Avery Brooks is a great singer because he kind of sings to her on the sidewalk. Yeah. Nice voice on that guy. Yeah. They run into, uh, they run into the preacher, and Benny is... Perfectly happy to to run into this guy. Like he's had some very like unsettling interactions with the preacher so far. Yeah, but he uh, doesn't view this as being haunted by him. Yeah, he says my story is getting published, and the preacher says this is only the beginning of your journey, not the ending. And then he says thinner, and then touches him. <laughs> and then the rest of the episode is really <laughs> upsetting. He goes to the diner, but he doesn't eat. He doesn't eat, Ben. The preacher says, I speak with the voice of the prophets and then grabs Benny's ear and has blood on his hand. And this is maybe like the one part of this experience that really felt prophet experience-y. In some ways, it felt like just get us into this 50s story, like who cares what the explanation is. But it seems like the prophets actually have something to, to tell Ben Sisko in this moment. Uh, but the prophets never say anything directly. No, they never spell it out. And and I, I love Cassie saying like, "Did you? Did that mean anything to you?" And he's like, "Uh, not really." Yeah. Morning, 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 sweet morning, morning, morning. Good evening, everybody. Morning. Stop. Have a time. The buoyancy of a Benny Russell is popped a little bit because the last thing that the preacher says is something about hope and despair walking arm in arm. This is foreshadowing something bad. And the foreshadowing doesn't take long to pay off because they hear gunshots from across the street. And for some reason, Jimmy's been shot. And uh, Benny, in going to investigate, has to be restrained by the Burt Ryan and Kevin Mulcahy characters of of Dukat and Wayun, restrained to the extent that they then beat him. Yeah. And beat him badly in the middle of the street. They beat the shit out of him for bumping into them and 
claiming to know for some reason Jimmy. Yeah. And uh this is another thing I thought a lot about like the you know like there has been this white America waking up to the scourge of police violence against unarmed black people in America that took social media and you know vi- viral video to to get to this this episode knew about it. Yeah, this is one of those scenes where we get a sequence that shows both the characters as detectives, but also as Dukat and Wayun. Yeah, the, uh, the the cuts are really excellent. I think it's interesting that we don't see Cisco slash Benny absorb this violence. I think the camera is trained very, very specifically on the cops versus on the victim. Right, yeah, like we only get that in very very wide shots but mostly the close-ups are like it's mark alamo like throwing a punch at the lens of the camera right we we, i mean we're put in benny's pov in this scene we are benny as the viewer here and then it's like weeks later right like the the next scene is him with a cane and still in casts and cassie is like helping him get his clothes on to go down to the office for the first time presumably since he was tuned up by these cops to go uh, get the the issue of the magazine that his story is going to be in it's a big day because the expectation is that this will be triumphant for him just no jumping up and down with excitement wouldn't want you to hurt yourself And this is, I think, why this episode is so affecting, because there's the sine wave of emotions here where you must feel the expectation of joy to feel the depth of disappointment as pronounced as you get it here. Yeah. This is the roller coaster clacking to the top before we get the drop. His coworkers all feel terrible about what happened to him, to their credit. They're not like, wow, provoking the cops, that was a bad choice, or whatever. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, But... Um, they're they're all everybody's waiting for this uh, for this issue to come back from the printer with Pabst, and uh, so they're just kind of unpacking the fact that Benny was beat to hell and how bad they feel about that. And uh, when Pabst gets back, he's got he's got bad news. He's got a lot of bad news. There isn't any magazine, not this month anyway. The way that Pabst puts it is part of what makes you hate him because you know that Pabst shares the opinion of his publisher but he's too chicken shit to directly confront Benny about it he very specifically doesn't even make eye contact with him in telling him that the the magazine's been pulped and all the reasons why Mr. Stone didn't want to release that issue of the magazine with that story in it Mr. Stone is such a strident racist that even even if it was a dream being had by a downtrodden character he didn't want that that radical of an idea getting out there uh this conversation doesn't go well because it (laughs) it goes in the place of not only is the magazine not being published but pabst is gonna have to fire benny also what but you can't fire benny russell because benny russell fucking quits to hell with you yeah, and he and he uh, does that classic thing of fuck you, fuck you, and he just keeps pointing at Pabst. Fuck you, fuck <laughs> you, fuck you. Then he points at the rest of them. You're all pretty cool, but like if you would all storm out of here with me, that would make a big difference. 
But that's not what they do. I'm tired of being calm. Calm never got me a damn thing. This is the moment of the episode where, in a way that seems like the highest degree of difficulty, Avery Brooks, as both director and actor, does maybe the performance of the series. Yeah. And when you read about how the other actors experienced this moment around him, they were at the same time totally in admiration of Avery Brooks's work, but also like the way they describe it is that Avery Brooks was so into this moment and his character that he couldn't turn it off. Yeah, I believe that. To get to the peak that he gets to here, I mean, you're you're really feeling the feelings, you know? Yeah. And the feelings in the 50s and the 90s are different, but not that different, you know? And... I think crucially in this scene, the other characters sympathize with him, but they don't walk out with him. Right, exactly, because Benny collapses into their arms and creates the tableau at the end, but they're not tending to him. And No, when he gets carried out on the stretcher, they're still in the building. And, yeah, yeah. And they're like, oh, what a, like, what a shame that, that that happened to Benny. Oh, well, back to work, basically. <laughs> that's where all this comes from. Like, that's that's the criticism right there. Like, them mm-hmm. standing on the, on the steps, getting ready to go back into the office and finish their work day is about white America standing by while shit like this happened in the 50s and in the 90s and et cetera and not speaking up. It's such an incredible moment in the episode slash show slash Avery Brooks's great career. We talk about this a lot when we talk about the actors we love, but like this is in this is part of the in memoriam reel that is shown for an actor is a scene like this. Yeah. It's amazing. It's fucking great. Inside the ambulance, Benny is wearing the uniform of Ben Sisko and the preacher is inside. Rest easy, brother Benny. You have walked in the path of the prophets. It's kind of a blended costume, though, right? He's still got yeah. the glasses. He's got the, the pinky rings. ring and the ro- and yeah. the wristwatch. But uh, yeah. but he's with the preacher. You are the dreamer, and the dream. And then the ambulance goes to warp. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it seems dangerous. And then they cut to what New York City looks like after the ambulance goes to warp, and it is destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you don't go to warp inside uh, solar systems, Ben. It's very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. But uh, Ben Sisko wakes up in the infirmary on Deep Space Nine, and uh, Cassidy and Joe, and for some reason Jake are there. And uh, turns out that this has only been a few minutes. He's been uh, he's been out for just a couple of minutes, and then all the symptoms sort of fell away, and. Bashir's like, yeah, I didn't do anything. (laughs) You seem better, though. You know, I think it's significant that moments ago, Benny collapsed into the arms of the characters in the office building, but with the care that that a co-worker would show. And in this composition, he's surrounded by all of his family who loves him, and it's a composition of all black characters, and I think that's significant and intentional here, too. I thought that was a scene that that was very striking. Yeah. I don't know that there's another composition that that does that on Star Trek. Like, for 
black characters all together in one shot. Right. That felt significant to me. Yeah. The button on the episode is a hang between Ben and Joe back in the Cisco quarters talking about the conversation they had at the beginning of the episode, whether whether Ben Cisco is going to uh, you know step back from his role as captain of Deep Space Nine or whether he's going to keep going and get tough with the going. The edibles really take hold here at this <laughs> during this conversation because uh, Ben Sisko starts talking a little crazy. What if it wasn't a dream? What if this life we're leading, all of this, you and me, everything, what if all of this is the illusion? Wow. <laughs> Joe's like, I, I put a little little too much in the jambalaya tonight. <laughs> For all we know, at this very moment, somewhere far beyond all those distant stars, Benny Russell is dreaming of us. Did you like the episode, Adam? You really want to do this here, now? Okay, okay, let's do it, do it! It's definitely a high point in the series, and... I've got to admit, Ben, I hadn't seen the episode before we watched it just now. It's one of the rare instances of a thing as good as its reputation. And so often, you know, especially when you revisit television and movies from the late 90s, you know, so often those things are disappointing. But uh, in no way was this that. I thought it told a difficult story uh, effectively and interestingly and crucially without the hand of a writer that can so often make things feel like a lecture or condescension right like this was a character driven story about really ugly issues and worked so well because it allowed the characters to tell the story the way that they did i think the 50s are such an interesting decade for so many reasons but you know, there was so much conflict in the country at the time between not just civil rights, but McCarthyism and communism. And I think it, it was just really well done. It, it feels like the sort of episode that could have been two episodes. It feels like yeah. the kernel of a story that could have made an entire series. It almost could have been like a quantum leap type series in a, in a way. Like there's yeah. al- almost so much here. It's a miracle that it was able to be just a single episode. And, you know, as we said before, like one of the miraculous parts about it is just Avery Brooks doing the hyphenate work here of actor director. It's just really outstanding work, and uh, it's it's. I really respect the hell out of him for it. Your point about it being almost like it could be its own series really resonated with me because I wrote down in my notes that this feels like an episode that almost. It almost feels like the creative team behind it wishes Deep Space Nine was not part of the Star Trek universe. Hmm. What if we could tell this story in a way that was unconstrained by things Bill Shatner said in the 60s or whatever? Yeah. Like, I mean, I had read that they walked right up to the cliff of breaking the fourth wall and going, maybe Benny Russell is the writer of Deep Space Nine. And what if that's the direction this series takes up to the point where they thought about bringing him back for the series finale and rosebudding the thing? Wow. One thing I also thought a lot about in watching it was what if the time he had gone back to 
was the year of this episode's production. Right. Could you make the same statements about race then? Well, here's why not, though, is is because I think once you do that, you begin to see the the more direct line between the problems that they're talking about and the problems of quote unquote today. It becomes like, then more it starts didactic. to feel like it's preachy. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm I'm always going to be here for an indictment of the fifties, and I think I imagine the preponderance of Star Trek fans are. I mean, Star Trek fans love dressing up in costumes and they hate the 50s. Like, those are the two things you know about Star Trek fans. Yeah, like the like the 50s as the golden era is like such a fucking garbage concept that I'm always excited to, to, to see torn down. But, you know, like, I think that um, this is also made in a time where Hollywood was making a lot of projects that flatter us the audience that a lot of these issues are issues of the past and yeah i I think it's a great episode i think its reputation is super well earned and uh, i really liked it yeah me too good one you want to see if we have any priority one messages adam priority one message from starfleet coming in on secured channel need a supplemental income supplemental income supplemental supplemental yeah it's extra but the interest alone could be enough to buy this ship Ben, our first Priority One message is of a promotional nature. What? Message goes like this. Make like Shimoda in the safety and comfort of your own shame cave. Enjoy a Wrath of Flan Stout. Fully functional (laughs) pale ale, our award-winning Utopia Planitia Red Rye Ale, or one of our many other beers that aren't Star Trek references carefully calculated to keep us just out of the crosshairs of Big Rod. (laughs) Oh, this is from our friends at Federation Brewing. Yeah. Oh, this is great. Message continues, with free Bay Area delivery and very reasonable shipping throughout California, you can ride this thing out like it was a pleasure cruise on the hood. So go to federationbrewing.com, enter DeSoto at checkout for 10% off your order. Ben, we've, uh, we've been the recipients of some Federation Brewing beers before and they make a tasty beverage yeah i think somebody came to maybe our first ever bay area live show from federation brewing and introduced himself and yeah. uh yeah this is uh this is very 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 exciting to be getting a p1 from them this is a time where restaurateurs and breweries and all sorts of smaller businesses like these really need your help and support. So I would definitely encourage you to go to federationbrewing.com as well as any other local restaurants yeah. that you love and, uh, and give them some love. So 10% off your order from them. That's great. That's awesome. Thank you to Federation Brewing for that P1. We also have a personal priority one message here, Adam. It is from Next Level Banana, and it's to Ben and Adam. And it goes like this. I've been stuck alone in a studio apartment for a month now. It sucks. But I've been listening to the back catalog of this show at night, and somehow that's made things suck a lot less. Thank you for keeping me company. We got you, Next Level Banana. Yeah. This uh, this does suck. Uh, I personally have had a really lousy couple of days dealing with the lockdown. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate to be healthy still and... You know, like, it's very easy to focus on the things that are not going great. And uh, spending some time listening to something you enjoy uh, 
is a great way to cope with it and always really flattered that that this show can be that for people uh when when we hear that from folks so uh thank you so much for getting a p1 and uh we're thinking about you next level banana thanks for thinking about us everyone who goes to maximumfun.org slash jumbotron uh those priority one messages uh both of the personal and promotional nature are some of the crucial ways that help keep this show going so we thank you we do indeed hey ben what's that adam did you find yourself a drunk Shimoda? Incredible. Drunk Shimoda! Uh, I'm going to give it to Willie the baseball player uh, just for being <laughs> so uncaring about the monogamous commitment of the lady he's trying to woo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a real drunk Shimoda boo. Yeah. She's, she's, she's made her intentions very clear to you, Willie. <laughs> Back the fuck up. You got four girls at that booth over there. Go talk to them. Yeah, go get into that booth pile. Sounds pretty good. How about yourself, Adam? Did you find a drunk Shimoda? You know, we were really effusive in our praise for this episode, but I think one of the parts of it that is not as strong as the rest is that Willie character. And I think part of it is that Michael Dorn was given a fairly thankless part of the episode. Yeah. It doesn't look easy to do what he's doing. And I think part of it is that his character wasn't given a really clear purpose right? other than to antagonize the Benny character in a way that many of the other characters were given such a purpose or a point. And so I guess I'm just going to double up on the Shimoda and, and give it to, to Willie, but for a little bit of a, a different reason. Like there's a lot of silliness with him for reasons that you stated, but also I think there's a bit less grounding to him in a way that a lot of the other characters get. So yeah, I think that, that's what I'll do with my Shimoda. Fair enough. Gotta get that, get that gold press action. Get that, get that gold press action. Am I right? Ah, yeah. Am I, am I right? Ah, you might have heard us talk about Squarespace before and you're thinking, what do I need a website for? I already have a bunch of profiles across the different social medias. But isn't it time you had a place online that wasn't owned by a social media company? How about you take control of your online identity with a website of your own? For that, there's Squarespace. With Squarespace, you can buy a URL and build a customized website with your name, and not a giant social media company's name, with your name attached and a bunch of numbers at the end. With Squarespace, you can have a place on the internet personalized to your aesthetic that lets you tell people about who you are instead of an algorithm. And the best part is, you don't have to be an experienced designer or a web page creator to make something great because Squarespace is always there for you with their award-winning 24x7 customer support. Don't settle for being another company's product. Be your own product with a website that's all you with Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code SCARVES to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com. The code is SCARVES. Think it. Dream it. Make it. With Squarespace. A good time so often has a downside, doesn't it? Especially when it comes to stuff that you put in your birdie. We've all been hungover before. I mean, many of us have, I guess. Or we've had too much jazz in our gummy. And that sucks, right? Because you don't think about the time after the good time that you've been trying to have a good time. 
That's why I like Lumi Labs so much. It's the predictability. Through painstaking trial and error, I have found my perfect dose. It's what I can depend on when I could use a little more chill, a little help getting into a creative headspace, and I don't need to have too much fun doing whatever it is I need to be doing. And I'm so glad that Microdose is available nationwide. That means just about anyone can try it. To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com and use the code SCARVES to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Again, that's microdose.com and the code is SCARVES. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Well, Adam, I'm hoping we can uh, figure out what and how we are going to be watching next. Do you want to head over to gach.biz slash game and fire up the game of buttholes? The Will of the Prophets? Oh, I fired it up. Okay. Mm. Well, the next episode of the show is Season 6, Episode 14, One Little Ship. Hidden on a shrunken runabout, Dax, O'Brien, and Bashir are Cisco's only hope when the Jem'Hadar overtake the Defiant. That's great. I'm really looking forward to a uh, a, a Rick Moranis cameo here. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, who's doing the role this time, Ben? That would be you, my friend. All right. You're required to learn as you play. Roll. Well, uh, Ben, we're currently on square 51, where uh, a few short squares ahead is a Quark's Bar episode. A couple squares after that is uh, a looking at each other during Ooh episode. Oh, boy. Don't want to get that one. Do not we, want to get that. We just got very angry at the whole idea of that. Yeah. Oh, got right in between them, Ben. I have rolled a four. Chula! <laughs> Did I win? Hardly. Which puts us on square 55. We are the meat in the Quark's <laughs> bar looking at each other during sandwich. Wow. And a regular old episode. Love regular old episodes, Adam. I also love people that go to MaximumFun.org slash join and support the greatest generation on a monthly basis. 
we may be in a max fun drive at this point. We may have already had it. It may be coming up. We still don't know as of this recording, uh, but one thing we do know is that uh, the originally scheduled Max Fun Drive was back in March, and uh, anybody that has joined or upgraded their membership in the uh, intervening time is going to be counted as part of the Max Fun Drive. So that's good. We I uh, heard that. Uh, yeah, that uh, I, I read that on Twitter today. Hmm. So uh, we really appreciate the folks that do that because. Um, like a lot of people, this has been a scary time for us, and we're, uh, you know, wondering what our viability is going forward. Yeah, it's like an awkward time to ask for support, but the way I'm thinking about it is like, it's like the oxygen mask thing, right? Like, make sure you got your oxygen first. Yeah. Help out the people around you. If you've got something left, uh, support the... Uh, support the shows around you that you can afford to yeah i think uh, that's a, a a really perfect metaphor so uh, we really appreciate it and uh if, if it's not in the cards uh from a financial standpoint like recommending the show to a friend or leaving a nice review on apple podcasts or your podcast app uh is uh, uh, also greatly greatly appreciated so thanks to all of the friends of desoto who support the show in all of those different ways Social media is a great place to talk about the show, and not everyone out there hates us. <laughs> you can read the comments about the show on Twitter using the hashtag GreatestGen. A couple of our favorite people are out there uh, doing doing the social media work on our behalf. One of those is Bill Tilly, who posts custom comic trading cards every week for our Uxbridge Shimoda shows. You can find him at Bill Tilly 1973 uh, We also got to thank our buddy Adam Ragusia, who makes... Uh, all of the custom original music for the show. Of course, he based his work on that of Dark Materia, who made the original Picard song, which you're hearing under our voices right now. Uh, Adam Ragusia, since being our music guy, went on to become a great big YouTube celebrity. He's got a, a very, very popular cooking channel, and popular for good reason. It will teach you great recipes to cook at home it's a youtube channel that doesn't start with hey guys <laughs> so you know it's professional mm-hmm. and with that we'll be back at you next time with another great episode of star trek deep space nine and an episode of the greatest generation deep space nine which looks a little smaller than you remember MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.